Welcome to the Automotive Leaders Podcast, where we help you prepare for the future by sharing stories, insights, and skills from leading voices in the automotive world with a mission to transform this industry together. I'm your host, Jan Griffiths, that passionate, rebellious farmer's daughter from Wales with over 35 years of experience in our beloved auto industry and a commitment to empowering fellow leaders to be their best authentic selves. Stay true to yourself. Be you and lead with gravitas, the hallmark of authentic leadership. Let's dive in. This episode is brought to you by Lockton. Lockton redefines business insurance and people solutions with a personal touch. Their global team of 11,000 is driven by independence not quarters, to tailor success for your business. Discover the locked-in difference where your goals become their mission. Independence. It's not just how you think, but how you act. Get ready to meet the man who has been described as the godfather of the EV. Yes, it's Dr. Andy Palmer, former CEO of Aston Martin and COO of Nissan. Andy returns to the mic for a conversation with me for a second time. Only this time we'll go much deeper into the story of his relationship with the EV at Nissan. And we find out what he's been doing since he left Aston Martin and so much more in this episode. You're going to hear a conversation, of course, about EV. Yes, about leadership and the challenges that face leadership in the automotive industry as we look into our future. But we're also going to talk about punk rock and chocolate biscuits. Dr. Andy Palmer, welcome to the show, or should I say welcome back? Oh, it's great to be back. Great to be back. Good to see you again. It is great to see you too. It has been two years since we last I know, last where talk. does time go? Just shoots <laughs> by, doesn't it? What has happened? Two years. So let's get right in and let me ask you, what have you been doing since Aston Martin? What has life been like for you? Well, it's been really good, actually. Coming out of Aston was very iconic, and I sort of spent a little time just thinking about where I wanted to go. And and as you know, way back sort of 15, 16 years ago, I was leading the, the Nissan Leaf. And at that time, you know, way back, it reminded me that we wanted to be net zero carbon, or what we, we deemed to be well-to-wheel, zero well-to-wheel back then. But in spite of our best efforts, Nobody really believed in electric cars back then, and nobody was ready to buy into the concept of zero wealth wheels. So the best we could do, I think it was pretty good, but the best we could do was was basically zero emissions. In other words, an electric car without a tailpipe. Coming back out of you know what was ironically really the the pinnacle of the gasoline engine at Aston, uh, re-asking myself that question, I thought it was somehow appropriate that the twilight of my career should concentrate on achieving net zero carbon. So what I've done is I've built the sort of rest of my career around around that concept of everything I do is net zero carbon. And, and that starts with becoming chief executive and executive vice chairman of a, a new company called Switch. Switch is basically a company that acquired the 
assets of Optair's electrical capability in the UK and Ashok Leyland's electrical capability in India come together to to create basically a, a new company that is all around electric EV buses and vans. And so that's gone from basically an order book uh, two years ago of about 40 vehicles and today stands with an order book of over 10,000 vehicles. So that's one area. The second area, I took on the chairmanship of a company called Inabat. Inabat is a, well, it was a startup, three years old now, in the battery space, the EV battery space. Obviously, it's not my first rodeo on on batteries, but the the technology has moved on interestingly. And um, we're just about completing our R&D center in Slovakia with the intention then to move on to gigafactories in the east and west of Europe. So back in the battery business, I also basically became chairman of a brand new company. We've just been through our Series A, which is called Hilo which is an electric scooter, EV scooter business. But it's basically aimed to be the, I would call it the Volvo of EV scooters insofar it's all about safety. And I'm basically senior independent director on a company called Podpoint, which is the largest uh, home charging capability in the UK. And so what you see is basically the ability through, through what I've done to be in the value chain for zero emissions with the battery, in the charging infrastructure with Podpoint, and then basically part of this, what what I'll call the the last one mile in terms of buses, vans, taxis, and scooters. So it's how you can have the biggest impact, not necessarily on the total CO2, but definitely on urban air quality. And so somewhere between the two of improving improving the air in which we live and demonstrating to the world that it's possible to do net zero transportation, not in 2035 or 2040, but in 2022, I felt that that was where I should really spend my effort. It seems as though you are living life very much in line with your values and your mission. And I'm thrilled that you didn't fall into another OEM. You know, another traditional OEM CEO, another big name company. I'm thrilled to see that you followed your passion. Do you miss anything from the corporate world? That I would say traditional corporate world. I mean, not going back into the big big car companies was a was a conscious choice, and I, I mean, I had that option. I wanted the spread. I wanted the ability to influence different parts of the industry. Honestly, I wanted the ability to be able to speak without the suit to politicians and press and not be shackled by the corporate PR machine. Do you miss anything? Yes, of course, you, you miss the, the big infrastructure that sits behind you when you're part of a big company. And, you know, it was a, it was a little bit of a shock to sit down and write my own speeches again. But in many respects, getting back to that core in the same way, in the same joy that I have sometimes going back to academia, it allows you to resurface some of those thoughts and uh, beliefs that you've maybe held through your career and bring them to the surface and recontext them. So I find the the ability to talk about slow progression towards net zero, the demise of the British car industry, 
I, I find it um, really empowering to be able to say what I want on social media or in the press about what I truly think is is the problem rather than pandering to a, a corporate position. Yeah, I, I would agree. And one of the things that I loved about leaving the traditional corporate world is that this ability to to learn and grow. I think everybody should step outside of their corporate role for a period of time because I've never read so much in all my life and talked to different people and just been all over the place, different events, different activities, different associations. Did you find some of that? Yes, and, and honestly, uh, I think there's a tendency when, you, when you're coming out and you're doing non-executive director or LP types roles, I think there's a, a tendency to almost take on too much. And I certainly did that. I've, I've recently cut back on a couple of things just to make sure that I'm giving everything the right level of attention. But there's that tendency to want, want to work and make sure that you're working full time. And I mean, at the end, I was working seven days a week and 15 hours a day, which is not, you don't give attention enough. So I was delighted just by the number of opportunities that came my way as I stepped outside that role and was able to get back in and do what I love. I mean, I love everything to do with cars and transportation. I'm, 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 I'm honored. I'm really happy to be able in that space, but with the freedoms that the way that I'm doing it allows me to have. Yeah. So let, let's talk about the EV and the evolution of the EV. You've been described as the godfather of the EV. So I have a very simple question for you, Andy. How do you know? How do you know? Way back when, with Nissan, with the introduction of the Leaf, how did you know that this was the future? I suppose I could make a very good story up here, but uh, that looked like a genius. But that would be that would be unfair on history. How did we know? We didn't know. We we, we didn't know. What we did know was that. Um, well, first of all, I, I was lucky enough within my group to have a market intelligence group led by uh, Mrs. Hoshino. And that was basically a group of individuals that were often uh, psychology rather than car industry backed and were looking at social trends. Now, in, in most cases, the, those individuals didn't really fit into the corporate world of, of Nissan, but I was able to build an infrastructure that protected them and so we were able to look at what we thought might be happening 15, 20 years hence. We were looking at the generational changes, and that was certainly throwing up the greater need to think green, for want of a better expression, that the millennials were likely to be much more engaged and their purchasing behaviors influenced by the effect of, of the car on the planet. So that was one important data point. A much shorter-term data point was that Nissan had been, broadly speaking, one of the first uh, vehicle manufacturers to move to hybridization. Um, it did so with the Tino in Japan. And then it walked away. Uh, and that gave uh, Toyota an open road to introduce the Prius. And Toyota built uh, almost the Prius brand reputation was almost bigger than Toyota. And of course, the, the sales and marketing guys, particularly the Japanese sales and marketing guys, were screaming and saying, we need a Prius, we need a Prius. And I wasn't prepared to give them a Prius 
Because for me, that wasn't the brand direction of Nissan. Nissan was all about innovation that excites, and doing a Me Too product didn't seem to be the right thing to do. So the third data point is that partially because of the compliance vehicles that all manufacturers were doing to meet the Californian regulations, Nissan had in its buried in its advanced engineering departments, it had some nascent technology around batteries, and particularly around lithium-ion batteries. And so bringing those three data points together allowed us to establish the idea that rather than Me Too hybrid, that we should jump a generation and go directly to battery electric. And, and ultimately, that's what we did. Ironically, an untold story uh, actually is that the, the first vehicle initially that was going electric would have been the ENV200. And I was responsible for commercial vehicles in, in Nissan. And that seemed to be a good idea to get it into the vans for that last one mile, exactly where we are today. But ultimately, uh, I felt that it was better to go with the car. And that's how we ended up with, with Leaf being the first and ENV being, being the second. It was probably ahead of its time. Uh, it, it didn't achieve everything that I wanted. Some of the hypotheses that, that I made were, well, we made were wrong or at least wrong in the first instance. I'll give you an example. Our great belief that to make an electric car affordable, you had to have a small battery. So we went with a 24 kilowatt hour battery. What we've seen after launch is, you know, basically this so-called range anxiety, mostly driven by the lack of infrastructure. And that was our problem. That's why we couldn't get to net zero. We couldn't get a hold of the infrastructure, the stuff that car companies don't do. And so what you've seen in the last 15 years, I suppose, is a growth of the size of the battery. So you look at a Tesla's a day, and as you know, it's a well over 100 kilowatt hours of battery. That's a heck of a lot of weight and cost that you're towing around, often redundant. If you want to get to, and I think humanity has to get to affordable cars, $15,000 MSRP at the bottom end, all the way up, of course, including the luxury ones. But to get to that, let's call it that $15,000 car, then you're not going to do that by cost reducing everything else. And you're not, the technology of the battery isn't coming down the Moore's curve quickly enough to make that possible. So one of the things that you've got to do is you've got to improve your charging infrastructure and reduce your onboard battery size in order to make the car affordable. And I think that's one of the one of the keys to addressing that A and B segment market, which is so huge around the world. And I'm thinking of China and India in particular, but also, of course, even into the US. It's very much, I think, the next phase is around uh, infrastructure development. Mm, yeah, that's fascinating. Let's stay with Nissan for a moment. Carlos Ghosn has been in the news a lot lately, and I just watched that movie again for the second time. And as I'm talking to you today, and I talked to you two years ago, and I obviously follow your career and what you do on social media, I see a man who's very comfortable in his own skin. You're truly an authentic leader. You're leading in line with your values and your beliefs and your mission and I, I got to believe that when you work for a guy like Gowen, and this is kind of a long-winded question, so bear with me, <clears throat> how do you, and this is not just targeted at, at him, but he seems like he's a good example and he's in the news, so we'll use him. 
how do you work for somebody who perhaps does not align fully with your value system? Maybe is, is a different kind of leader. How do you how do you li- how do you work in that environment? How do you bring you know as they say your authentic self? And I, I've been asked that question by clients just recently, and they said, you know, I I, I want to be an authentic leader. I want to come to work. I want to give everything for my people, but my boss doesn't really think that way, the same way that I do. How do you deal with a situation like that? I can't comment on going and the going situation itself because that's still subject to all sorts of legal procedures. Uh, and as you know, he's a, a felon on the run in, in, in both Japan and in France. So I won't prejudice myself by talking about going himself, but the, the issue of values and the difference of values with your boss, I, I think you can only ultimately be true to yourself. So I think to make predictable decisions and look at our staff that work for us all want to think that there's predictability when they go to their boss. I think you've got to believe that my boss today is going to think in the same logical pattern that he thought yesterday and the day before, that that basically he's connecting the dots from positions that he took in the past to positions he's going to take in the future. We've all worked for people where that's not true and, and you don't know which which particular boss you're getting the next time you walk into the office. And I think that's not something that people genuinely accept from good leaders. Good leaders need to be consistent and they need to have a fairly understandable value set and they need to li- live to those values every day. I would like to think, and, and certainly the further up the tree you go, uh, the, the wider impact you have. You can't always protect those individuals from what the bus the, the boss is, is thinking. But but generally speaking, you have a delegation of authority and at least your bit of the organization can work to to your values. So and then of course, if the value set becomes so mismatched with your boss, you've got to leave, haven't you? And you know, that's happened to me in the past where I've uh walked away from situations where I no longer deemed it appropriate to uh, to work with those individuals. And I'm, you know, I leave it out there where, where that's happened, but it's happened a couple of times in my career. Yeah, yeah I, w- I would agree uh, wholeheartedly. I worked for a guy once and he was only as good, his opinion was only as good as the last office he came out of. And uh, that's that's so difficult to work for a guy like that. And you're so right. Consistency and predictability generates a sense of security and people feel safe and they feel they feel trusted. And then in theory, they will give you their their best work and they will do anything for you. So I think there's yeah, there's you're right. There's a lot to be said for that. And the idea that you're going to work for somebody for your entire career where you're going to be 100% aligned is, okay, if it happens, great, but that might be a bit of a stretch. You're right. You can control you. There are always points in your career where your where your belief is that we should go left and the organizations is that we're right. That doesn't necessarily make it away from your value set. I, I recall a Nissan basically being the only person on the executive committee that didn't agree with the way that Datsun was going to be deployed into India, that was okay. I made my point, and and and, and we went 
and deployed Datsun in India. And I was able to live with that decision and get behind that decision because it didn't, it didn't compromise my value set. But at other points in my career with other, other decisions, but basically things have gone, okay, that's, that's, that's beyond my red lines. And, and I either have to compromise myself or leave. As you get older, in particular, and as you, as your, your mortgage is is, is paid off and you're a little bit more financially stable, then it's easier to make those decisions. But I, you know, I was called upon to make those decisions earlier in my career as well. And they're stressful. However, if you truly believe in the value set that you set yourselves, then you've got to stand behind them. Otherwise you become fake and everybody can see that you're fake. Yeah. Well said. What do you think, Andy, is the biggest challenge that we're faced with in the auto industry today as it refers to leadership and culture? It's a a tremendous amount of change. I I see that the traditional OEMs are are getting it with the product portfolio. We're seeing EVs coming out. There's always an announcement, uh, new EV companies coming up. But I don't see as much focus on the leadership and the culture. What do you think is the biggest challenge we're faced with in the auto industry today? Clearly, we're at a a juncture, which is probably as big as when we went from horse and carriage to car, as we moved from traditional internal combustion engine to new generation of, of, let's call it new energy vehicles, predominantly EV. And, And it's certainly true that it requires new companies to come into being and old companies to turn themselves into new companies. And when we get to that, look, you can look at most of the startups. Most of the startups have or will fail. And they ha- will, will, will fail because they, partially because they've misunderstood the complexity of, of, of designing and making cars, but partially because they haven't got their culture right. And the old companies that are turn that have to turn, some of them will fail, and some of them will fail not because they don't have the technical capability, but because they haven't engendered the cultural capability to to work with that change, or even haven't believed in the change. So they're making EVs almost with that twenty year ago mindset of compliance vehicles. We do it because we have to do it, but. Any transformation, and and as I say, I think this transformation is as big as the one in the 1890s and the transformation to cars. This is so big that getting your corporate culture right is is the only way that you could get to a 70% possibility of success. It doesn't guarantee success, but it gets there an awful lot more if you have people that basically know what they're working for, like what they're working for, are consistent in what they're working for, and have the energy to deliver what they're working for. And you only do that by by setting the the tone and the culture of the of the companies that you're working in. So we're still humans and therefore that human interaction, the way we work as teams, the way we motivate ourselves to be a winning team is still the hardest thing in any organization. The practical skills of, of how to make a car, to some extent you can buy or you already have, but how you turn it into a revolutionary vehicle 
is I think the uh, the, the real skill. Yeah, and, and I think in automotive, uh, particularly, this there's this idea. Obviously, I'm sitting in Detroit in uh, more traditional automotive land, and there's this idea that the California tech culture is the culture that we need to have. That we we cannot be weighed down by the the legacy and the practices of the past. And like you say, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, even, you know, that type of command and control culture will will not see us into the future. And then we tend to look to the California startup, the tech culture, but that in itself has issues too. And I uh, watched the, the movie about Uber and also WeWork, you know, these, the successful companies, but oh gosh, the culture. And we hear some horror stories coming out of Tesla and also Rivian, you know, this idea of this bro culture that's starting to evolve. Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, I think you have to create your own culture to start with. I don't think you can import somebody else's. And I don't think there's any magic model. I think it's equally plausible that Ford can be successful in EVs as 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 can Tesla. There's only one Elon in the world, and we're not going to be able to import him into every car company. So I think depending on your brand values, depending on your national backgrounds, depending on your technology, depending on your people, I think you have to create your own story, your own your own challenge, which is unique unique to your particular position and something that every employee can relate to. Sim- simply importing a culture from Tesla is is just going to be confusing because if you want to work at Tesla, you'll work at Tesla. So I think that's the the onus is on the leader of the organization to take stock of where you are, take stock of your brand values, take stock of your history, take stock of your technology, and build a roadmap that gets you there and build people around you that are bought into that into that goal. It's always, I mean, it has since, you know, basically humans have fought each other on a mound with swords standing on a hill. It's always been about rallying around a flag. And as long as you believe in that flag, then then you'll give it your best. And, And the persons that are motivated will give their best even better and you've got a better it doesn't guarantee you success but it it guarantees you a better chance of being successful and i think that's the key and that, you know depend i think you know national influence has a part of that certainly when i was when i developed the second century plan at aston being british and being british luxury was was part of it when we were developing the 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 various plans at nissan it was very much around Bold and thoughtful, which is a, which is an expression around Japaneseness, and in particular the way that you paint kanji. But so I think national identity is is a part of that, and the way that different nationalities buy into a mission is also slightly different. So, as a as a leader, I mean, you might like me, you might have come up as an engineer, you might have come up as a marketing person or a financial person, but I would say ultimately the understanding of your the culture in which you work, which is some mixture of national culture and company culture, is probably the biggest asset in writing those plans. But I come back to the fact many of those startups that we talk about today will fail, and some of the traditional auto industry will be slow to pivot and will fail. 
I'd go as far to say that if you were to take a account of car companies, let's say in the year 2000, and you were to take a account of the car companies, let's say in the year 2050, the number of car companies is probably about the same, although there will be different names on the list. Yeah, and you, you talk about failure. Uh, I'll give you a quote back from our first interview two years ago. You said, if you're not spinning, then you're not going fast enough. That's still true? Yeah, that's uh, true. <laughs> yeah, it's still true. I mean, so if you could you could put it into a more stale analogy with the principle of Kaizen, principle of Kaizen, uh, which of course is Japanese small improvements, plan, do, check, uh, action, comes from Deming originally, it, it is about learning from failures. And if you're not making and breaking, as every engineer knows, it means that you're not you're not close to the you're not close to the edge. You're not close to optimal. That's certainly true in NASCAR and Formula One, but it's equally true in the car business in general that you 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 need to make, break, and improve. And the key attribute within that is improve. But I, I think and that's one of the biggest problems we have in traditional OEM world is that this idea of failure is not accepted or rewarded it, it, with with innovation with technology we know we have to we have to iterate and iterate and iterate but this idea of if you fail you know if you fail a couple of times in a row you're gone you're done there's this there's this tremendous fear in the old style culture no absolutely uh, and then the auto industry historically has been one of the worst for that so there is if you want the two bookends there's the traditional car company with screw up and get out versus, let's say, uh, let's call it a Silicon Valley uh, behavior where it's it's okay to fail and learn. Neither of those positions are really acceptable. I think you can see so many of those startups assuming that the, the dinosaurs are idiots and just making fundamental, fundamental errors. I don't know how many startups I've ad- advised or, or, or spoken to where they've for- forgotten completely the importance of manufacturing maturation. And you can look at their master schedule and say, that car is going to be at least 12 to 18 months late because they won't be able to make it. Of course, what you hear as it goes on is everybody talks about production hell. It's only hell because you made it hell. Now, on the other hand, as you say, basically, if you're a traditional car company and you simply follow the rules that you've established over the years, then you're never going to innovate. And so you need, and that's where the culture comes in, you need a mixture of of, of both. And that's why you see sometimes some car companies, I'm thinking of Polestar, for example, where you set up a, a EV unit w- within the main car company itself and you try to give it some degrees of autonomy to to have the knowledge of what an auto engineer and auto manufacturer uh, needs to know, but also bring some of that stimulus and reward for innovation and almost reward for some failure. Yeah, it's going to take a very special leader to lead somebody, something like Polestar. I see it with Ford, with Ford separating off the EV as well. It's going to take a very special leader that can can pull in both to create a culture that is unique to that company. Yeah. And look, those will be the the Bob Lutzes uh, of, of the future. Those few people that are able to make that 
transition, uh, able to manage that transmission and transition and are successful. Those will the, those will be the people that the car industry remembers. They'll be our automotive all-stars. Let's talk for a moment about this, the dark side of the EV culture and the, the, the bro culture that they're talking about. When Laura Schwab left Rivian, you, you came out very clearly in support of her. And I think every woman in the country, certainly every woman in automotive was like, yes. Uh, what, uh, could you speak a little bit to that? Well, I, I mean, look, I'm, again, I, I'll not comment on Rivian itself because I'm not close enough to the company to know whether it has a bro culture or not. But I will talk to, and I'm, I'm very passionate about the importance of diversity. And, and not, not, you know, this is not me being, you know, basically super liberal and supporting women's rights or ethnic rights just for the sake of it. This is me being very, very capitalist insofar as it is my innate belief that if you want to create the best car in the world, you need to exercise all of the knowledge within a company. And that knowledge is not simply embedded in middle-aged white males. That if you're selling a vehicle that is going to sell to women or people of different ethnic backgrounds, the best way of understanding is for representatives to be part of part of the company that's creating it. It's diversity which ultimately leads to a more successful product. And again, look, I give you the example of the Aston Martin DBX. Alongside the main team, we, we had a, a female advisory board, a, a, essentially a parallel board that aimed to compensate for the fact that Aston Martin didn't have enough women at, at its senior management level. And it needed the female advocates because Aston needed to sell to female customers. 94% of its customer base was male. So it needed to open up that, that route. And, and rather than middle-aged white guys predicting what women might want, it was, it was much more, I would say, productive to have women from the customer set that we were aiming at telling us what we needed to do, whether that was at the design concept at the engineering of the product or the marketing of the product at the end of the end of the development process. So to me, bro culture, for, for want of a better word, is self-defeating because it makes your company less competitive. That if you can embrace diversity, not not so that you've got the the the, the right gender and, and 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 racial mix, but because it makes you a more competitive team. So that you've got people, you know, take a football team. This is my soccer football team, as we would understand it. But you don't have the same person as your full back as you do as your striker. You have different skill sets. And the best teams are the ones that can pull those different skill sets together and pass the ball with fluidity. If you're all the same, if you're all strikers, then you're going to be weak at the back. If you're all defenders, you're going to be weak at the front. So diversity is about creating that mix, that team, working your way through the difficulties of, of people thinking differently, but embracing those values. And if you can do that, in my experience, you get a much better product and a much more competitive product at the end of the day. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And in 2021, you were awarded the Men as Allies Award by the Women's Engineering Society. Uh, it was a great honor. It was it was nice to be recognized. And it was it's one of the things that I'm most proud of. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's tremendous. Of course, we love that. Okay, let's talk about authentic leadership. Uh, you've had a chance to look at my 21 traits of authentic leadership, which I have managed to curate after all my many years in automotive and interviewing uh, phenomenal leaders like yourself. Which one resonates with you the most, Andy? I'm going to say, look, there's nothing on your list that I disagree with. I think the the most important thing is that you have, to some extent, all of them, and and that you tune them together. So I don't think there is a, a singular um, a singular value that marks out a leader. In fact, I would say that it's not having a singular value. That basically it's having multiple multiple points. Um, clearly, there are things like stand out, like the the innovation and the vision to see where you want to go. But there has to be more than that. I mean, just having a vision isn't isn't enough to be able to deliver it. So a good leader is a very rounded leader that is able to empathize with with people, that is able to empathize with with different positions and, and brings many of your twenty-one values into one person. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Let's talk about this. Working from home versus working in the office. Where do you stand on that? If you'd have asked me before COVID, I would have adamantly told you, I believe that people should be in the office. And I'd have adamantly told you that because of all of my values that I've stated around team working and humans need interaction. We went through COVID, right? We, we, we spent two years. I mean, Switch was... Switch was a baby of COVID. We've launched three new products, three new buses during the COVID period, during working from home. It was a bit extreme, and uh, I'm not advocating that we should go 100% to working on Zoom because I think as uh, we're, we're social creatures, and I still believe in that that need for bonding. And I know in the case of Switch, we're now having to overkill a little bit in terms of getting people together and having management seminars where we uh, we get to know each other a bit better so i think i fall down somewhere in the in, in in the in the region of hybrid working i think it's important in terms of employment of millennials that that expect it i think it's important in terms of efficiency that that we are at least i speak for myself that i'm more efficient when i'm on zoom but we also have to acknowledge that some people are less efficient. So I think that the, the concept that you're three or four days a week in the office and you're one or two days a week on Zoom or Teams, I think is a good mix. I think it may change individual to individual. I think it may change depending on where you're in the organization. But I, I think that inevitably we, we, we will be, as we go forward, part of hybrid working it's just it's just normal and natural and the technology is marvelous thank goodness thank goodness for zoom huh where would we have been without it if we'd have been having the covid crisis a few years earlier i don't quite know what we'd have done uh but you know we can create things by zoom and, and sometimes it's just more efficient so i'm fully in the hybrid camp 
Yeah, I would agree. There's some face-to-face meetings that you, you just can't you just can't have on Zoom. And often it's not the meeting that you're having on Zoom. It's the meetings that you have before the meeting when you're face-to-face and the conversations that take place after. We, we somehow have to protect those. But it can't be mandated. It can't be you must be in the office three days a week because, because I said so. That can't be it. It's got to be a bit more intentional and a bit more thought out than that, right? Yeah, look, I'm a great believer in management by consensus. That's not the same as weak management. That's about basically making sure that the people in the room have come to a consensus that they can all bind to, even if they, even if they didn't fully agree with it at the beginning. And the key to consensus is what the Japanese would call nemawashi. Nemawashi is basically the pre-discussion. And it's about having your, your say, spending however long it takes to convince or be convinced, uh, with your, with your peers. And I think that things like Zoom and Teams can be a great aid to that because you can have those private conversations, uh, not necessarily in, in, in the, in the middle of the room where everyone's watching you, but you can have those conversations beforehand. Lobbying is another way of saying it, but, uh, but I prefer the expression of Nemawashi because it's consensual and it's not one way. And I think therein lies part of the importance of culture. I think that the historical top-down culture of the, hist- the the sort of legacy car companies doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work with particularly Gen Z millennials, and therefore you've got to get to a more con- consensual model. Yeah. Talking about Gen Z, let's talk about the days when you started your career. You were an apprentice, and I know that you believe wholeheartedly in the idea of an apprenticeship. And the Palmer Foundation is is, is being created very much to support that. Talk a little bit about why you believe so passionately in apprenticeships. To start with, we should probably correct the, the Z to a Z since we're both Brits. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah Gen Z. Gen <laughs> um, Z. We fall into Americanism easily, don't we? The way of training people historically has been the master teaches the apprentice, and it's a well-proven model. Over the years, I talked to the British system, but I know it's true in many other systems, we've tended to encourage our children or our students to go to university. In the UK, university is about 50% of the student population. And in my humble opinion, and based on my experience, many of the degrees that have been studied are a waste of time. They're a waste of talent. And many of those individuals would have been much better pointed towards a more hands-on approach, something that that was more to their skill set. So classroom teaching doesn't work for everybody. And, And I would say for many, a better approach is is basically practical training. So I'm not decrying universities. I think university education is a is a marvelous and important method of of education for some people. Those that are more, let's say, academically minded and perhaps more STEM focused or specialist in their particular function. But for the rest, an apprenticeship is almost certainly a better way 
of reaching higher education. And you get you get your. I mean, I got my I got my bachelor's, master's, PhD, and uh, MBA. I got those along the way in my career. I didn't finish studying until I was forty years old. Um, but you, so you can get there if you if if that also is a passion. But equally, I you know I left school at fifteen and I, I was in a four year apprenticeship at sixteen, and I probably learned more about my career and and uh, and about engineering in those four years, and I definitely learned more about myself in those four years than I did at any other any other part of 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 my career. And I feel I felt and I continue to feel that I'm a better manager of automotive people because somehow or other I've made all the bits on a car that I've cut my fingers on the steel I've I've formed the plastic uh, I've I've forged the the bit the, the wishbone or whatever but there's somehow or other you I mean crudely put you sort of know where the bodies are buried as a result of 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 coming from the another Japanese word from the gemba from the shop floor and you probably have more kudos with the people that work for you because you've come from there. So again, I think it's part of that analogy of football again about strikers and defenders, left wing, right wing goalkeepers, that any good team has to have a blend of practical people and academic people. You, you definitely want the smartest guy in the room to be on your team, but you also want the best deliverer to be on the team. And, and, and often those are very different types of characters. And the skill of the leader is to be able to bring those different types of people together in order to get the best out of them. So yes, look, apprenticeships are really important. And the problem that I've seen over the years is you still see too many privileged kids going into, uh, in, into apprenticeships here. And uh, often kids from deprived backgrounds that are not a necessarily particularly good schools maybe don't have both parents around them to to guide them maybe fall into gangs at sort of 14 15 years old the foundation that i set up is about trying to catch those kids male and female mixed backgrounds that basically would otherwise fall out of love with stem subjects that's just is the science subjects keeps them on track uh, essentially the foundation acts as a mentor through those difficult 14, 15, 16 years, gets them an apprenticeship and pays for that apprenticeship for the first two years. In other words, during the period where they're not so useful. And then the company takes them on uh, thereafter or puts them to one of the great universities in order for them to catch their degree. The, The goal is that by the age of 21, whether they came from that difficult background or whether they did Harrow and Oxford, that they're at least equally good. They're on the start line at the age of 21 with equal chances of success. I remember years ago, those tool and die makers, you know, when I was starting in purchasing, you could go to one, you didn't have to get on some AI program. You could just go to them and say, hey, my supplier's got a problem with this stamping. Will it work or not? Should I push them or not? And they'd go, yeah, they should be able to make that. Or no, they can't. I mean, it was like a five-second discussion, that that knowledge that these these guys had, unbelievable. You know, I, you know I've got, you know, 100 stories like, like that, the same, but the if you've never really made something, 
then you don't know the difficulties. And I saw this as a as a designer and a draftsman drawing stuff up. Uh, I'll give you an example of 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 putting the the center point of a, of an arc in midair rather than against something that's referenced. And, and the guy milling it will come to you and say, "How the hell do you expect me to make that? You basically you're 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 taking my datum out of midair." Uh, couldn't you do it another way? And and it's things like that. If you've done it, if you if you know you you can't find a datum in midair, then when you design the part, you design it in a different way. And ultimately, of course, that makes the part better, makes it cheaper, and also creates a certain reputation with the people around you for being a smart engineer. Well said. Okay, let's get into some personal stuff, shall we? Be afraid. Sounds, Be afraid. Uh, sounds sounds, uh, sounds a little scary. <laughs> okay. Did I read somewhere that you're a punk rocker? Or you like punk rock? Did I read <laughs> well, that? Well, a few years ago. <laughs> so my, uh, you know, my my apprenticeship days, I left school in 1979, and it was, it was right in the middle of the UK punk rock era, the Sex Pistols and the Stranglers and all of those great groups. So I grew up to that kind of music. And so... As you get older, of course, you also you also tend to remember the glory days to uh, to to quote Bruce, Bruce Springsteen, and so you tend to gravitate back to that music. So I do enjoy punk, I do enjoy rock, and likewise. Sometimes I enjoy jazz and and, and classical. But yeah, I, I I would say I've got a full collection. I've got a full collection of punk uh, punk punk rock albums. Who's your favorite back then? Uh, back then, pro- probably the Stranglers. Uh, I liked Susie and the Banshees, uh, um, as an example. No, um, you did not. I, I watched. I, That's my favorite. Yeah, I That's Susie my favorite. You know, she was. I would call her a major influencer for my style growing up. I saw. I, oh, yeah. really? Well, there you go. Well, she she had she had a great style and uh, helped and abetted by uh, Vivian at the same time as well with all of the stuff that she was doing, which of course was all. Around Sex Pistols. In fact, I would I would encourage you to watch. I think it's on the Disney Channel, and it's the history of the Sex Pistols. I did. Pistols. I saw it, and, it, and it's 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 really it's really good. good. I really I enjoyed watching it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and and, she's, and Susie's in there, isn't she? As a, as a big influence on on Vivian's fashion and uh, and direction. Well, I'm a huge Vivian Westwood supporter. In fact, I usually wear her little necklace. I love when I go back to Cardiff, I always go back to Vivian Westwood's store. And I think she's she's in her 80s now, I think. She, she must be, yeah. But she's still around, I'm pretty but sure. There's, which is, uh, can't be said for everybody else around uh, the country. That's here. right, she survived it. But there's a woman <laughs> who was also mission-driven. She's she's very much around the mission of of fashion, and you know we buy too much, and we shouldn't buy we shouldn't be buying all this stuff. But I love her success, love her style. So I can't believe you're a Susie and the Banshees fan. Wow, it's fantastic. Okay, so tell me during COVID, what did you binge watch? What show did you binge watch? Do you have a series that you liked? You know, I don't think I did. If I did anything. It was was basically I have a, an old vinyl record collection, and I I went back to to playing some of those old albums that I, I got around me, and I probably did the opposite to what lots of people did, which is I, I'm I'm not exactly the fittest guy in the world, but I started walking, and so I ended up walking for an hour and a half every day, which was a, a real luxury because I, I've never been able to find time 
to do exercise. So, you know, I, I also lost uh, a little bit of weight and, and felt a lot better for us. Unfortunately, of course, now COVID's gone. I'm back to my old ways. But but those are the two things that come to my mind, at least, uh, during COVID. And I can't say, I mean, we, we, the, the the lockdown was was terrible for so many people. But for for me, it was a, actually a little bit empowering that I could spend a little bit of time with my teenage daughter and, as I said, walk and listen to some great rock albums. I love it. Now, tell me, what is the number one distraction that you fight with? What What takes you, I mean, we all have them, right? For me, it's Facebook, bloody Facebook. I go on my phone to check the weather. <laughs> the next thing you know, I'm down a rabbit hole watching some stupid thing on Facebook. So that I have to really work on that. So what's your number one distraction that you have to fight with? The demon of distraction. So undoubtedly Twitter. I enjoy being present on Twitter, but you can get, as you say, you can get led down rabbit holes. And the other distraction is food. So trying not to snack, which is my great weakness. I love, I love food and wine. And, um, you know, that, that's the idea that I know over there, there's a drawer where I've got two chocolate biscuits left. That's a distraction. <laughs> Is that your weakness, the chocolate biscuits? Are you, are you more uh, of a rich undoubtedly tea? What, yeah, I mean, I, I drink tea by the gallons, but that, that's not, not so bad, I suppose. But the, uh, the snacks are, are not good. All those redundant calories. <laughs> yeah, I know. I can relate. <laughs> Okay, so in closing, Andy, what would you like to share with our audience? The audience being leaders of all levels in the automotive industry. One closing thought for our audience today. It's difficult to sum all of that up, isn't it? But but I think there is there is a, obviously a work ethic is is really really important, and you don't get to be a leader if you don't have a work ethic. So. I would say that's almost a hygiene factor. So I'm going to come with the, the importance of being genuine, the importance of being yourself, the importance of having a clear vision on your own values and then living by those values. The the ability to disagree with your boss, but not necessarily in a violent way. So learning, learning to influence by doing uh, and not simply blowing in the wind, which so many people do. So I'm going to go with that authenticity message, I think. Yes, lovely, lovely. Well, Andy, thank you so much for your time today. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you again. See you in two years. <laughs> yes. Thank you for listening to the Automotive Leaders Podcast. Click the listen link in the show notes to subscribe for free on your platform of choice. And don't forget to download the 21 Traits of Authentic Leadership PDF by clicking on the link below. And remember, stay true to yourself, be you, and lead with gravitas, the hallmark of authentic leadership. Mm-hmm.